Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. My mom um, makes a practice of listening to my sermons still. She's 81. And so, Mom, happy Mother's Day. Uh, Oftentimes, she'll call and say, I have some thoughts about your sermon. But she always finishes with, I believe in you. So it's always good to hear from her. So if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath a chair in front of you or near you. And uh, it's page 724 in that Bible. And where we'll begin reading is verse 37, which is like on the far left side of the left page, about halfway down. It says this, the next day, Jesus and his three disciples, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now, one of the things that I love about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that the Gospels are primarily, if not almost entirely, stories. And if you're anything like me, you love a good story. I mean, there's a reason that we continue to go to movies. Although, do we go to movies anymore? (laughs) We just stream them now, I guess. But there's a reason why we continue to watch films. And while, why when we see a good one, we say to someone, have you seen this? And they say yes, and then we begin talking about it. There's a reason why we continue to read novels and people continue to write them. There's a reason why we continue to binge television shows. It's because they're stories, and we as human beings are storytelling creatures. 
The author Ethan Kanan says, we do not dream in equations, we dream in stories, sometimes bizarre stories in our dreams. But even if you wake up and you have a dream, and you, what do you do? You try to put it together in a way that makes sense. You try to kind of cultivate some sort of narrative out of it, because this is how we are wired. And a good story does something, no matter what the story is. What a good story does is it invites you to find yourself in it. This is one of the tricks of the trade with screenwriting. Screenwriters know that if they're going to create a film that's going to appeal to people, they have to make the characters themselves connect to the audience. And so, for example, if there's a character on a screen and you find yourself in a place where you cannot stand them, it's likely that there's something in your own life that's either been hurt by someone like that or there's something about yourself that you don't like very much that you find in them. If there's a character you're drawn to or have empathy toward, whatever it is, you're finding yourself in the story. And this is the power of stories. Just this last week, I got to spend a few days with leaders from all over the country, and we all got together, and it was interesting how quickly data was over in conversation when you would meet someone. And by data, I mean, hi, what's your name? Data point. Where are you from? Data point. What do you do for work? Which is a very American thing. I don't know if you know that. We like have this obsession with work. So one of the first questions we ask is, what do you do for a living? And you get through the data quite quickly, and then what happens? You begin to tell each other stories. And there was one person there who told a story about how they were wounded by the church, and the first thing that I found myself doing was connecting with them because I have that story too. And within just a few hours of us being together, stories were being told and people were pointing saying, yes, me too, I understand, that happened to me. Why? Because we find ourselves in the stories. Now I point all of this out because oftentimes I think when we come to the Bible, we don't think of it in terms of stories. It, somehow we're supposed to, I don't know, understand it or dissect it or know all the Greek and the Hebrew words. And if we can just do that, then we'll be able to understand it. And it's almost as if we're standing over the text and we're picking it apart and then we'll be able to figure out exactly all of the meanings instead of looking at it as a story and saying, where do I find myself in it? Now, to be fair, some of the stories in the Bible feel like fairy tales some of them seem like they're otherworldly. Some of them read more like a fantasy novel than they actually do real life. But I wonder what would happen if we began to read the text and say, where do I find myself in this? Rabbi Lawrence Kushner speaks about these old ancient stories, and this is what he says. He says, the stories tell you from where you have come. Your father was this and not that. And in doing so, they foretell your destiny. The great stories did not happen to the masters of old alone. They happened to us, you and I. This moment, a tale unfolds. It is only that we have lost the narrative element of our existence. For you see, we are the stories. We are the stories. 
And so this morning as a way of walking through this text that we just read in Luke chapter 9, what I want to do is I kind of want to walk through and just make some observations, point some things out that might be kind of hiding, maybe even in plain sight. But as I do that, I want you to ask yourself the question, where do I find myself in this story? Am I with the group of the disciples who were not up on the mountain, who were there watching this father beg for his son to be healed, and I'm not able to do it? Are you the father who's begging for his son to be healed? Or maybe, maybe you are the tormented soul in need of healing. Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you coming down from the mountain? Are you in the crowd? Where do you find yourself in the story? This is the question I want us to think through together this morning. Now, the story begins by saying they came down from the mountain. And if you were with us last week, you know about the story where Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk up onto a mountain And the three disciples are falling asleep and all of a sudden they wake up and they realize that Jesus' appearance has changed, his clothes gleam like lightning, Moses and Elijah are there, a cloud comes in and says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. It's this divine encounter that has the power to reshape a life. And as soon as it happens, the cloud vaporizes, Jesus is back to normal, and they're sitting there looking at each other in Jesus. And then it says, they come down the mountain. This incredible experience of the divine, then they come down the mountain and there's a crowd and someone in the crowd needs help. This is how life is, isn't it? Like, no matter how great of a time we're having, we know at some point we're going to turn around and something unplanned that demands our attention is going to be waiting for us. This is how it is right here with these disciples coming down, and it says that there's a crowd waiting for Jesus, and a man in the crowd calls out, Teacher, I need you to heal my son. And he says, I begged your disciples to drive the unclean spirit out, but they could not do it. Which is an interesting little wrinkle. Because if you read from Luke chapter, or 9 chapter 1 on, you'll re- recognize that Jesus at the beginning of this chapter sends out his disciples in groups of two. And the first thing he says to them is this, I give you power and authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal all diseases. And now, just a few verses later, apparently, they can't do what Jesus has given them the power to do. And as a matter of fact, when the man says, I begged your disciples and they could not, the word that's there that's translated could not actually contains the word power in it. What he's saying is they don't have the power to do this. Now in this context, that's a very interesting thing to say. Because power in the Jewish tradition at that time was kind of like your resume. You know how your resume works. You have some sort of background in education. You have experience. You have work experience. And what do you do? You put that together for an employer, and you say to them, here my, is my experience. Here's why you can trust me. Here's why I would be a good addition to your organization. It legitimates you. It validates you. And this is the way power worked, especially power over unclean spirits. There was a tradition within Judaism That if one had the power over unclean spirits and the power to heal, they were legitimate. 
They had authority. They were, we might say, of God. There's actually a, a legend about Moses and another one about King Solomon, the son of David, who was the second king over all of Israel. That stories about them driving out impure spirits, about them healing people. And it was their, the, the, their way of saying Moses and Solomon were of God. They had legitimate authority. They were powerful individuals. And, and we see this all throughout the Gospels. People keep coming to Jesus. They're not sure of who he is. And they say, hey, give us a sign. Let us see some of your power. Because if we see the power, then we'll know you're of God. We even see this continue into the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke tells us that Peter and John all of a sudden become these individuals who had the ability to heal and to drive out unclean spirits. What is he saying about them? He's saying these people are of God. Luke tells us the same thing about the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 19, we learn that Paul goes to Ephesus and he's in the synagogues for a few months and he's preaching there and teaching there and people are beginning to oppose him. And then he says that Paul had such power that even if he touched something and it was brought to someone who was sick or had an unclean spirit, the unclean spirit would leave or they would be healed. So the narrative is Paul is in a place where they're saying you're not of God and the author says hang on a second he has the power to do this so obviously he is of God and then he even takes it a step further because he says while Paul had the power to do this there were seven sons of a man named Sceva Sceva he tells us was one of the chief priests Sceva was a part of the religious establishment that was opposing the work of Jesus and he says these seven sons went into a home where there was a man who was possessed by an impure spirit and they said, come out of him. And the impure spirit said, listen, I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is, but I don't know who any of you are. And then this is what Luke tells us. It says the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's not funny to any of you. <laughs> I mean, like, some of you are like, I never heard that in Sunday school. With good reason. Put that on a flannel graph. Imagine if the kids downstairs come up and they're like, I have a coloring page from you. And you're like, what is it? Like the seven sons of Sceva. And you're like, oh, good Lord. You know? <laughs> what is the writer saying here? It's a question of who is of God. Paul could heal. These seven who are connected to the religious establishment, they can't. Now we know who is of God. The trouble in this story is Jesus comes down and this father says, your disciples lack power. What does that say to them? I mean, at that point, they're not feeling great about themselves. Because who they are and who they are of is being questioned. And then almost to make it worse, Jesus says, you crooked and perverse generation. Which is like not something you put on a greeting card. This is not encouraging. And it often feels confusing, doesn't it, when we see Jesus use harsh language? 
Because one thing I know is we, like, we kind of like buddy Jesus. Like the one who just is always giving the thumbs up and the wink and the nudge and like, you'll be fine and just never seems to really care about anything. It's just, he's like, like I said a few weeks ago, he's like Ted Lasso, just always super happy. But you come to these words and initially you're like, whoa, these are really harsh. Jesus here is actually doing something that he does quite often. He's giving a hint. In the Jewish world, they call it a remetz. Say remetz. Good, now you've learned something. It's basically the Hebrew word for hint. And what it is, is it's he's quoting something with the expectation that those who hear the line are going to know what he's talking about. You've ever been with somebody who always loves to quote movies? You have that friend? They have like no humor of their own. They have no ability to think independently. You say something and they kind of smile and they quote it like a movie line. You're like, what is that from? They're like, the Big Lebowski. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. What are they doing? They're quoting something, expecting you to pick up the reference. This is what Jesus is doing. And in fact, what he's quoting is Deuteronomy chapter 32, which contains the song of Moses. Now, Josephus tells us that in the temple during Jesus' time, they had the scroll of Deuteronomy, and separate from that scroll, they had the scroll with the song of Moses written on it. We know through archaeological discoveries, the Qumran community, who is responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had their scroll of Deuteronomy, and they also had the scroll of the Song of Moses separate from it. The rabbis claim that every Sabbath in the temple, the priests would read or would sing the Song of Moses. So this is a very well-known song. And the theme of the song is basically this. God provides in the, in the time of need, always, regardless of what people do. God is faithful to provide even when the people of God are unfaithful. That's the theme of it. But if you read through Deuteronomy chapter 32, you begin seeing words and images and pictures that are given. Pictures like this. God is a nurturing parent. God gives birth. God nurses his, her children with sweet honey. The image actually in Deuteronomy 32 is the image of a mother. Now some of you are like, man, you guys plan so well here. Mother's Day sermon. This is fantastic. We actually didn't plan it this way. I just love when things like this line up, but truthfully we didn't. But it's interesting to watch the rabbis point toward the fact that over and over what we see in Deuteronomy 32 is the image of a tender, nurturing, birthing, nursing mother who cares desperately for her kids. This God who says, no matter what you do, I will always, always provide for you. And in the context of Deuteronomy 32, when you read these words, you crooked and perverse or you wicked and perverse generation, there's actually something in it that makes you go, oh, you're talking about how they see themselves. When Jesus says these words to them and he's hinting at another text, what, what he's saying to the disciples is not, 
I can't believe you guys can't do this. What he's saying to them is, do you really think you can't do this? It's almost as though Jesus believes they should be able to do this because he's already given them the power, and somehow they don't. Jesus is saying to them, come on, you got this. You've been given this. You can do this. It's all the things we read in the words of liturgy just a few minutes ago about how a mother sees her kids. This is a very tender way of speaking to the disciples. You have this. One of the things that I notice in Jesus' relationship with his disciples is that while sometimes he does get frustrated, which is understandable, he's in his 30s and they're teenagers. And if you've ever hung around with teenagers, you love them to death, but sometimes they can be a little bit frustrating. But one of the things in the midst of all of that is Jesus continually has faith and belief in them. I wonder, like, what would it do for us this morning just to take a minute and consider, like, Jesus believes in you. Like, Jesus' plan was, hey, just get a bunch of people together, tell them about my way of life, and turn them loose into the world. That's actually a better plan than me being here. Like, Jesus believes in you. Jesus believes in us. This is what he's saying to his disciples. You should be able to do this. And rather than going on chastising, he then says, bring the boy here. And the father, on his way to Jesus, is bringing his boy, and his boy is thrown into convulsion by a demon, Luke tells us. Now, some of you might be here this morning and be like, okay, I appreciate, I mean, but demons, like we're still, we're still talking about that. We're still going to talk about the spirit world, these evil creatures. I mean, we know better now, don't we? What I find interesting about people in our world today who look at stories like this and kind of go, that's adorable, kind of primitive, but adorable, is that they lack a lot of imagination. It's almost as though, like, well, if I can't explain it, then it's probably not real. Interesting. So you are the measure of what's true in your life. Hmm. You see, you might be here this morning and be like, I just have a lot of trouble believing in like these swarthy, leathery creatures that fly around at night and look terrifying. All right. But have you ever met somebody who has a spirit within them and you recognize they are a tormented soul. There's something going on with them that I can't quite explain, or maybe there's something going on with me and I can't quite identify it, but something is incredibly disruptive. Something is opposing the work of God in me and through me into this world. Barbara Brown Taylor speaks about this kind of skepticism around the demonic, and she says this, I know the spirit that makes people eat what will not nourish, and buy what they cannot afford. I know the spirit that makes people work longer and longer hours at jobs that never get done. I know the spirit that makes people more and more afraid of each other. I know the spirit that makes people believe they deserve the terrible things that have happened to them by persuading them that God is an angry father with righteous fists 
whose punishments are for their own good. If we aren't all rolling around on the ground foaming at the mouth, maybe that's because we've learned to live too well with the unclean spirits that possess us. Plenty of us don't even recognize their presence anymore, including those of us with symptoms. All we know is that we can't sleep at night, that we live at the edge of tears, that we lash out in ways that aren't like us, which is actually a hopeful sign since it means that we will still have some sense of what we are really like even when we do not seem free to act from that God-given center. I don't know what spirit, we might say, is afflicting you or someone you love. What I do know is that when the Father cries out in the midst of the crowd, Jesus hears the cry. And one of the things you will see throughout the entire scripture is that whenever the oppressed cry out, God hears their cry. Jesus stops everything after this unbelievable experience and says, bring the child to me. And when the child is thrown into a convulsion, Jesus compassionately rebukes the spirit and it says he makes the boy whole again and gives him back to the father. And it says, and the people are amazed at what? The wonder-working sideshow from Nazareth? No, they're amazed at the power of God. Because when they see this kind of power that is able to right the wrongs, when they see this kind of power that is able to work against that which opposes God, both within us and outside of us, that's when they go, I know who this guy is, and he is of God. And they're amazed. They're in wonder. And they celebrate I wonder, when we read this story, where do you find yourself? Are you with the disciples who find it impossible to do anything? Are you like a parent begging for healing for someone you desperately love? Or are you a tormented soul? I want to read this story again now that we have a little bit of background and just ask you to listen, maybe even close your eyes to these words, asking yourself, where am I in this story? The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. I don't know where you find yourself this morning with regard to this story. Maybe you feel like you're someone who can't do anything right. Someone who doesn't have the power to really bring the change you long to see in this world. 
Maybe you're here this morning and when you heard the words, someone begging for healing for someone else, you knew exactly, you had a face in your mind, you had a name in your mind, you knew exactly who that person is. Maybe you're here this morning and you are that tormented soul. I don't know where you are this morning. But what I do know is that the divine is not up on some mountain that's difficult to get to in a cloud where you can barely see anything distant and removed from the real life that we are living here right now on this earth. Jesus is among us. He hears the cry. And like a loving mother, he hears, he heals and he believes in us. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would continue to keep this story in our minds and in our hearts today. That we would spend time contemplating it, asking where do we find ourselves? I ask that these words would bring comfort to us. The tenderness of Jesus would bring comfort to us regardless of where we find ourselves. And what I do ask is that you would allow us to see the loving heart of a mother in the tender heart of Jesus. We pray these things together this morning in the strong name of the one who brings healing. And all my friends said, amen. amen. And as we continue our time together this morning, uh, we're going to participate together in Eucharist, a meal that says, where do you find yourself in this story? You, the body of Christ, you who are invited to be broken open and poured out for the world. We participate in this meal together, and it's the meal of Jesus. It's not the meal of Denver Community Church, which means all are invited to participate. And we do this because Jesus invited us to do so. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says this. Well, I'll just say it. While they were eating... While they were eating, while Jesus and his disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood. And as Paul reminds us, whenever we eat this bread... And whenever we drink this cup, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns to visit us.